You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan, and I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, while the attention of global investors has once again returned to China, but this time it wasn't because of the trade tensions with the U.S., rather it was China's own domestic crackdown on the for-profit education industry. Spooking investors to the tune of a more than 10% drop in the MSCI China index in just two days. It was so shocking that Goldman Sachs strategists actually came out with a note saying clients were asking them if China had become uninvestable. Well, has it? We'll get into it with a chief investment officer who's currently in China. But first, Charlie Pellet, tell us who this week's mystery co-host is. This week's mystery co-host is Yi Shi. He is a markets reporter at Bloomberg and was a Go Chess champion as a kid in his hometown of Wuxi, China. Since moving to the U.S. 16 years ago, he's become a Seinfeld fanatic and still listens to reruns on his iPhone every night to help him understand close talkers like Regan. <laughs> Yi. I too am a Seinfeld fanatic, as you know. I hopefully in the if Bloomberg were Seinfeld, I'm thinking I'm probably the Kramer character. I don't I don't know. Hopefully not the Newman character. What do you think? Yeah, um, and my favorite is uh, George Costanza. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I think he's everyone's favorite. And you also have now have me intrigued with Go Chess. I'm gonna, you're going to have to teach me how to play that sometime. Right. It's, uh, it's like one of the Asian, most uh, Asian uh, chess game, very popular in China, South Korea, and Japan. And I just taught myself at age of probably five, six, and just uh, really obsessed with uh, playing it. <laughs> but uh, I, I won the, uh, uh, the champion in, in the city when I was in middle school, um, but I stopped playing in high school because I'm so busy with the study. <laughs> so I'm sympathetic uh, about the crackdown of the cramp schools. Uh, I'm sure we will talk about on the show. That, that's, a, that's a good segue <laughs> into our guest here and what's going on in China, the cram schools. Um, and let's bring in our guest. He has uh, really uh, had a, quite a resume in the financial industry and in the investing industry. He's one of the co-founders of Research Affiliates and more recently, he's the founder and chief investment officer of Radiant Global Advisors. His name is Jason Sue. Jason, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And Jason, I wanted to get into that idea about the, the for-profit uh, education industry in China. Now, luckily, I know a little bit about this. I edit Yi every day, so I've, I'm able to read his insights on China, so, so I know a little bit. But I think 
for a lot of Americans, this seems like a strange thing for a market sell off, uh, a, a crackdown on the education industry. But walk us through, um, you know, basically what problem is China trying to solve here with this crack- crackdown on for profit education and, and why such a dramatic impact on the market in China? Absolutely. So this is a little difficult for, I think, Westerners to understand because cram school, uh, the for-profit educational sector, is something very foreign to Westerners, but it's a part of the Asian culture, not just Chinese, but really, I think it is just uh, a part of, you know, uh, the Korean, the Japanese, uh, the the Chinese culture. Essentially, uh, cram schools offer you additional after-school tutoring. And it often occurs in a form of sort of uh, regurgitation, uh, memorization of a vast test bank of questions that are likely to be on the next national entrance exam, right? In in Asia, uh, gain, gaining admissions into the top high schools and eventually from there, the top universities uh, requires one scoring uh, at the top of the list on a national entrance exam. Uh, so most students spend all of their days essentially preparing for that big exam. And the easiest way to, to get a high score is not by doing well in school, not by just you know, by, by understanding the actual knowledge, uh, the easiest way to gain admissions is to practice test exams over and over and over and over again. And if you pay to go to one of the more uh, premium uh, tutoring programs, uh, you'll just have access to the latest test banks. Uh, you have access to experts who may have uh, greater ability to predict what's going to be on the exams. Uh, and and thereby gaining an enormous advantage. And so in Asia, it's a very expensive exercise to to go to these cram schools. Uh, they're they're costly, they're expensive, but it's also in terms of the hours that children uh, commit to uh, additional memorization and studying. I think this has become such a social problem. If you cite the the number one reason for for teens committing suicide, it's because of the, just the unbearable hours uh, that, that they have to commit to this. And also um, for a lot of parents, it's, it's, it's very expensive and it feels very unfair because uh, the premium programs that give you the highest chance of, of, of uh, scoring high on the national exams uh, are quite expensive. Uh, so it's it's broadly understood and viewed as a social program uh, problem. Uh, you know, Taiwan has tried to fix that. I think Japan has tried to fix that. Again, you know, as I mentioned, the the high suicide rate is really a problem, and I guess China has uh, come down with its own way to fix the problem by essentially uh, making these cram schools nonprofit and hopefully uh, taking them out of the equation. Yeah, and there were a, a pretty big chunk of equity involved in this. I guess you know these companies have grown so large because of all this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the for-profit cram schools are incredibly profitable. They're massive. I mean, uh, there was a point in time in China that the the for-profit educational sector is viewed as the most important consumption demand, right? Like people are would would, would stop paying rent. They would stop eating just so they could keep paying for cram schools for their kids. Uh, And so, you know, it's viewed by investors as one of the, you know, uh, probably safest uh, industry to invest in. (laughs) 
the joke in China is that um, people asking why crackdown education companies or the cramp schools will bring down the whole market. Um, and the joke was that think about this way. If there's 10 birds on a tree, you shoot down one. How many birds are left on the tree? So I thought this is a good analogy to explain the fear. People are worried about who's the next target. From, for, as you mentioned, Jason, that for a lot of like foreign observers or investors, they don't quite understand Chinese policies. It seems quite random, ad hoc in, in terms of policies and regulation changes. Uh, if we think about it, it started with Ant Group in November when China put down their listing at the last minute. Then we started to have um, government targeting Alibaba, Tencent, all these big internet companies for their monolist uh, behavior. Then we have the DD, um, the government banned their app soon after the uh, their IPO in the US. Now we, now we have the education companies. Is there any coherent logic of all these government actions? Is any ultimate goal China is trying to achieve? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think the best analogy, uh, and hopefully one I think the uh, the, the West uh, will be more sympathetic to, is you know the Chinese regulators. Uh, they see themselves as you know part of the global ESG trend, right? Um, you know, part of it is saying that look, the free market uh, doesn't solve all problems, so you can't just leave. Problems, especially social ones, the free market, uh, very much, you know, in line with the ESG, uh, I think philosophy, which is, uh, you need regulators, you need socially minded individuals, investors, uh, to, to sort of come and undo some of the excesses, you know, some of the negative externalities, uh, of free market competition. And so I think the Chinese regulators very much have been looking at, you know, what are, uh, the problems that uh, perhaps, you know, profit maximization has created that they, they think need fixing that, that, you know, society can't tolerate anymore. Uh, so if you take the, the educational sector, I think, uh, as I mentioned, you know, that's, that's been a social problem that a lot of Asian regulators, a lot of Asian economies have been trying to, to fix. Uh, but if you even look back further, right, in, in the recent month, uh, as you mentioned, uh, whether it is, um, sort of, uh, cracking down on some of the big consumer tech where the monopoly power has made, uh, both work conditions very, very bad for laborers and also made it uncompetitive for smaller businesses to get in. For example, you know, Meituan, uh, their share price also took a beating, uh, when, when the regulator announced that it is not acceptable for them to, uh, treat all of their employees as contractors and not pay essentially social security for them. Um, so, you know, that's very much, uh, something that, that, that's been, uh, talked about in the U.S., uh, you know, with Uber, with Lyft, uh, where essentially regular says, look, you know, the, the, businesses are being unfair and not paying their fair share for, uh, you know, what other, you know, for-profit businesses have always paid, which is pay into the social security, uh, for, for uh, employees instead of treating them as contractors. Uh, so if you look at, um, these issues and understand them and clearly just, they're going to be idiosyncratic to each economy and markets, you'll start to be able to predict, uh, at least the Chinese regulators behaviors, uh, when it comes to what are the important ESG issues that they're grappling with and they're likely to act on. You know, uh, Jason, it's one of those times I wish this podcast was on video. I just want to set the scene for listeners here. 
Uh, Jason is appearing to us uh, from what looks like the Starship Enterprise from, from, from Star Trek. Absolutely my favorite Zoom background I've seen in a lot of these. I keep expecting Miss, uh, you to get a call from Scotty, you know, saying we, we ain't got no power, Captain, or, or something. But, but Jason wins the, the best Zoom background of in, in what goes up history. I'm, I'm going to say it, say it here right now. But Jason, I, at, in that intro, I, I said, I mentioned that note from Goldman that was out this week saying, you know, their clients are, are calling them up saying, is, uh, is China uninvestable right now? And I know you're managing a active ETF uh, with Chinese stocks. So I'm assuming your answer is, oh, I hope not, at least, you know, but, but, <laughs> but given this sort of, you know, regulatory risk that we're talking about, how do you, how would you answer that question? You know, you sort of hinted at the idea of trying to, put your head in the mind of Chinese regulators and get ahead of, of what might come next. But what is sort of a good industry that in China is, is a, a beneficial to society that you don't have to worry about the government sort of uh, turning off overnight, like we saw in the education industry? Well, I would say uh, now that uh, the government has sat down and had a good talking to with uh, the big financial, <laughs> uh, I guess, with the, the big fintechs and the consumer techs, uh, and then warn them about uh, wielding monopoly power. Uh, I think, you know, for firms that truly have innovated and that have brought products and services that have made things better and, and easier, uh, certainly benefited the, the consumers, uh, created large, uh, you know, large number of jobs. You know, I think governments are, are generally, you know, globally and, and, and certainly in China, supportive of uh, businesses and industries like that. Uh, so I would say, you know, broadly, you know, most of the firms that have sold off are probably good buying opportunities today. Just pay attention to those that are likely to be in the crosshair of the regulators, right? So, uh, you know, firms that, uh, you know, continue to wield monopoly powers and, uh, and, and don't seem to sort of get the memo with regard to, um, you know, the government's uh, sort of displeasure with, uh, with monopoly powers and, and anti-competitive behaviors. Uh, and certainly, you know, I would say industries that, Traditionally, in the West, that we're more concerned about, you know, uh, the the liquor, the tobacco, uh, those are all likely to be issues as industries that are big polluters that are anti-green and being you know, given that carbon neutral is now a big uh, initiative uh, for for China. Uh, so those industries, I think that that traditionally are, are more of the uh, negative or low ESG. Uh, Firms and industries, uh, I think those are the big risks in China. Uh, and uh, and again, you know, this is partly because, uh, you know, Chinese regulators and, and, and Chinese societies are no different to the Western societies. As they become wealthier and can afford it, uh, they do demand some of the very same sort of ESG issues to be taken care of as, as we in the West do. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So there's a, this sort of a perception um, from the investors, especially after the recent events, that it looks like the Chinese has become anti-capital now. They are moving backwards. At least there's this is a perception there. I guess that's why um, Goldman had fielded so many calls from their clients, whether China is uh, investable or not. It looks like there should be a China discount because people don't understand the rule anymore. People don't understand the boundaries anymore. Um, and uh, I saw um, this article from Stephen Roach, his uh, long-term China bull. He's, he said he's been optimistic about China for the last 25 years. Now he start to doubt whether this is a this is a moment he should uh, have a have a second thought. So, do you think that China is doing the right thing? Well, uh, I think you know execution can always be better. Uh, I think uh, you know a lot more pre communication, being a lot more clear about what the regulators uh, want to accomplish, uh, being much more uh, I would say transparent with regard to. The sort of ESG agenda, especially, uh, I would say, you know, carbon neutrality would be a good one. You know, China's been signaling that, signaling its path toward green. Uh, and, and I think that's helped out the market a lot in terms of understanding where to direct capital, what to expect. If, if China sort of shares that same kind of transparency with regard to perhaps more of the negative ESG issues that would help the market out a bit as well. And certainly I think the in investors got to do the other half, right? Because actually it's, it's been in a number of policy speeches given by President Xi going all the way back to late 2018 with regard to his concern about the inequity in the educational field and, and really the pain created by the cramped schools on, on the children's and the parents. So I think investors also have to, to you know, uh, listen a bit more attentively uh, to, to sort of some of these policy pre-signaling. Uh, but I would say, yes, uh, in terms of execution, it can always be, be better understanding how markets can lose confidence um, from, from even the slightest, I think, surprises coming from regulators, especially uh, when it comes to China and, and especially in this current environment. Uh, so, yes, you know, much can be improved upon, but I would say uh, the, the work goes on both sides, right? Both the, the regulators in China, but also uh, investors looking to invest in China because we got to recognize it is a more foreign market. Uh, our access to information uh, is a little bit more challenged versus our access to information when dealing with, say, U.S., uh, you know, the, the, the NICE. Uh, and so investors uh, really do have to work a little harder as well, right? It's not a responsible approach for, for managers and investors to, to simply just blame Chinese policymakers in this case. You know, Jason, you have such a strong background in sort of the the academic quantitative approach to to investing, you know, at research affiliates and presumably now at, at this firm. And at risk of repeating a joke, I think I've already made on a previous episode of the podcast. But, you know, to me, it's like being a quant in the market is, is sort of taking the, you know, being like in the college classroom approach to markets where the retail trader has taken over and it's it's now more like a market that's a fraternity party rather than a, a classroom setting, you know, 
And I know in China, it has that reputation for being a, such a retail-driven market. I've seen stats, uh, something like 80, 90%. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Something like 80, 90% of volume is China is is retail-driven and and very much a sort of a, a, a gambler's ethos rather than a, you know, a buy and hold investors approach to the market. So I'm, I want to ask you a two-part question about that and feel lucky. Sometimes I ask 12-part questions, so two parts let you off easy. But uh, so how does a quant approach China given that type of of uh, dominance in the market among the retail set? And secondly, um, you know, are there lessons to be learned from analyzing that cohort of the Chinese market for what we're now seeing in the U.S., where this growing dominance of of retail uh, investors and kind of their unpredictability and their sort of, you know, investing on whims and and message boards. You know, I'm guessing momentum probably is a factor that that translates regardless. But I'm just curious, how, you know, as as a quant, how do you how do you approach a retail driven market like China and, you know, are there lessons to apply to the U.S. market as the retail trader sort of takes over? Oh, absolutely. So first of all, you're absolutely right that uh, uh, China is a retail dominated market. And because of that, there is a very much casino feel to it rather than a long term investment retirement um, investment based um, feel to to that market. Uh, the result of which is in the short run uh, prices. Uh, can feel random, right? Prices don't seem to rationally respond to uh, either news uh, or sort of changes and developments in the fundamentals of companies. Now, that's, of course, not a China-specific issue. Right? Any market that's heavily retail, for example, you know, U.S. has gone from 3% retail to now closer to 30% retail with the, you know, Robinhood free trading and, and you know, WallStreetBet.com, uh, you know, type, type of activities. And, uh, and, you know, in China, it's just, you know, three times the, 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 the magnitude, right? Because they, they're, they're closer to 85, 90% instead of 30. Uh, so I think as an investor in the short run, uh, what will help you be successful is actually focusing more on what drives sentiment, right? So be it the news cycle, right? Be it what is capturing the attention of media, uh, of uh, major influencers uh, on, on blogs and, and podcasts. Those are probably likely to give you more of an edge trading in that market. So in some ways, uh, think of, you know, uh, short-term signals, uh, betting on short-term momentum, short-term mean reversion, looking at almost, you know, technical uh, pattern uh, type analyses are going to give you an edge more so than looking at long-term fundamentals, understanding industries and firms. Uh, and in fact, you know, the most successful investors in China today, you know, are not the stock pickers who understand cash flow discounting, not the quants who understand sort of these uh, long-term factors that predict earnings growth, but really uh, people who employ technical analysis on a, on a daily basis, uh, you know, the you know, I would say more of the high frequency market maker type of uh, investors and, and strategies. Uh, and yeah, so in, in that type of market, uh, you're, you simply have to bring into play a lot more of the non-fundamental, more of the sentiment based uh, analysis to um, to really have short term success. But I think in the long run, markets always converge and come back to fundamental and China is no difference. Uh, it just means you have to put up with more of the short term noises.
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Uh, Jason, I'm a, I want to uh, let you talk your book a little bit here and uh, <laughs> to talk to me about the Rayleon Quantum Mental China ETF. Uh, Ray Q is the ticker, right? And, you know, tell me what- uh, Ray C, Ray C, Ray C, Ray C, okay. Good. That was a test. I'm just making sure you got your tickers right there. So say say I'm a guy in the elevator there on the Starship Enterprise with you and, and you got two minutes to- to tell me, uh, you know, sell me on this ETF. It's an active ETF. So what, you know, what's the selling point uh, for it as far as your methodology and how you construct the portfolio compared to, say, the FXI, you know, the index tracking passive ETF that U.S. investors are, are pretty familiar with? What's what's your sales pitch? <laughs> well, <laughs> if you want to access uh, China, right, uh, you want to access China actively. And that's because a cap-weighted passive index uh, doesn't make sense for a very inefficient market where in the short run, lots of great companies are underpriced and lots of bad companies are overpriced uh, and where you know, giving, you know, doing some research is going to give you an edge in terms of knowing what the informed institutions are buying, perhaps knowing what the informed uh, and, and well-plugged-in people who understand policy shifts uh, are, are buying and doing. So the active approach is certainly going to help you additionally by the, you know, low price, good quality firms that will grow and avoid, I think, a lot of the hype, a lot of the stories, a lot of firms that uh, do eventually become regulatory risk, either because of poor governance or because, uh, you know, sort of uh, just general poor compliance with uh, with the regulatory environment. So you, you got to go active in a market that's, uh, you know, 85, 90% uh, retail traded. You know, Jason, one of the um, rationales I heard uh, for the crackdown on the cram schools was is China's three child policy. You know, they want to encourage uh, families to have three children. And obviously, if you have to pay for three sets of cram schools, that's going to get going to get pretty expensive. Um, But I wonder that's a fascinating concept to me, because here in the U.S., we have a hard time getting people to wear a mask, you know, to 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 stop a virus or, or get a free vaccination. Uh, you know, we have a hard time having the government getting people to do anything. But in, in China, you know, I, I wonder, is it harder to get couples to have three kids than to say the, the one child policy? And and how important is that uh, of a policy as far as the economy and, and how you're thinking about investments? Does it play into it at all, this potential for for a, a sort of a baby boom relative to what China has seen in, in recent generations? Okay, so first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think uh, it is probably far more difficult today to ask 
you know, Chinese couples to have kids than to not have kids. And then again, and that's more of an Asian phenomenon today, right? If you look at Taiwan, you look at South Korea, like the birth rate per couple is, is less than one, right? So that's, that's obviously very bad for demographics, right? That's very bad for looking at consumption growth, you know, 10, 20 years down the road when, when you have such a, you know, rapidly dropping uh, population. Kids, uh, kids, so, are you know, kids are very expensive. Kids as, are. As a father of three kids, I will tell you. I, uh, this, <laughs> you met your quota in China. I met my quota. So I'm in compliance. You've you done well. You've done well. <laughs> Yeah, and as so kids are, are very expensive from both a financial resourcing perspective, but also for uh, young couples in China today, right, where there's a lot more, I think, opportunities to make more money, change your uh, quality of life. So you start to think about, hey, you know, I have opportunity costs, right? When I'm raising kids, I, I, I'm maybe not out there making money or spending money, given that I'm able to make a lot more money now. So I, I think what we're seeing is really a, a issue we see in developed markets, right? You know, as, as economy evolves, develops, um, people's willingness or the need to have more children simply have, have declined. So that's just something I don't think you could mandate easily and change. Now, of course, you know, the government has sort of gone out and tried to research what's stopping young couples from having to, you know, having kids or wanting to have kids. And, you know, the, 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 the responses, unsurprisingly, have been so expensive to raise kids. Right? Part of it is cram school. Uh, part of it is... Um, uh, you know, real estate, right? Because if you want to be in areas that are safer, nicer, uh, better schools, um, that, you know, real estate is expensive. The government's also been talking about, you know, how to, how to, you know, change, uh, or, you know, influence real estate prices so that, uh, that it's not so expensive for, for, for people to have access to good school districts and so on and so forth. Um, but, I don't think that'll solve everything, right? These are sort of on the margin issues, but they're not all the totality of the issues. Um, so I think um, the regulators and then the policymakers in China are going to find it frustrating that uh, they're 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 trying to do so much, but uh, the 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 out the outputs, the outcomes may not may not actually be as meaningful as say they're hoping to achieve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Play some romantic music over loudspeakers or something. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what they, they do. <laughs> Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, with that said, uh, guys, uh, I can't let you go without partaking in our tradition. And Jason, I hope they warned you about this, but we have a tradition here. We we end each show, show with the craziest things we saw in, in markets during the week. Yeah, I have a feeling uh, you got something crazy uh, for us. I, I want to start with you. Yes, it's actually related to the three-child policy. Um, so Panzhuhua City, uh, which is a city of uh, 1.2 million people in southwest China, Chinese province, is giving each couple, each baby actually, um, essentially 500 yuan, which is $80 a month for families that have um, second child or third child until the baby is turned three. So this is the first time, first China city offer cash for people to have more babies. It's probably pretty standard in the Western countries uh, to have child subsidies, uh, but not long ago, China had one point China policy. And in 2013, it turned into two China policy. Now we have a three China policy and people are offering cash to have people to have more babies. I think that's pretty crazy. 
That's that that'll work better than my romantic music idea. I think (laughs) that's how you do it. I guess off of cash. Yeah. (laughs) How about you, Jason? Have you seen anything crazy in in markets this week? Well, I think the craziest thing I I I I saw was the massive rebound. you know, in the educational sector, where essentially, if you read the policy announcement, these firms should be worth pretty darn close to zero. Right. But somehow, there are still people who are willing to jump in and catch a falling knife, uh, hoping there is a, a rebound, right? And so I, I found that pretty crazy, right? Yeah. You know, people are not doing their homework. <laughs> that is pretty good, yeah. I mean, I wonder boy, how long it's going to take to sort of, you know, remove the profitability from these companies. I, it's that is crazy though that yeah you're right though why would they why would anyone pay anything for them at this point if i mean literally the the regulator says look the firm you're buying we are going to make them into non-profits <laughs> meaning they're not going to pay a dividend right <laughs> and they're not allowed to make a profit but somehow you still want to become a shareholder yeah that is good that's a good one that's a crazy one all right well i'll give you guys mine i uh listeners know i like the alternative assets and the, the more alternative the asset class the better so I bring to you an auction that's going to happen next month in Great Britain. They're auctioning off one slice of wedding cake from the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana 40 years ago. Someone's, that's still available? Yes, yes. Someone saved one piece of wedding cake. I'll just... and. I hate to say it to you guys, but you have to play prices right with me now here. I'm going to ask you each what you think the the expected bid is for this piece of wedding cake. Put those quant skills to work, Jason, and, and, and let me know here. <laughs> it's ice. All right. Came from, there were actually 23, and as far as supply goes, there were 23 official wedding cakes for that wedding. <laughs> pretty amazing. Happened uh, almost 40 years ago, exactly, uh, July 1981. Features a marzipan base and a sugar onlay coat of arms colored in gold, red, blue, and silver on top. Uh, it was given to uh, one of the household uh, servants of the, the Queen Mother, and she kept this thing for all these years. Um, so it hasn't gone on auction yet, so who knows what the actual price will be. But what do you guys think? Two-part two question again. Start with you, Yi. What do you think the the expected bid is for this in British pounds? And second part is, would you take a taste of this wedding cake? <laughs> I was trying to say 10 bitcoins since we are talking about alternative <laughs> assets, but uh, we can't do the conversion to the British pounds. <laughs> no, uh, and no, I won't take a bite on the bite, the, the cake. <laughs> Smart man, 10 bitcoins, that, that puts it up at close to $40,000, so call it 30,000 British pounds. Jason, how about you? Yeah. You, you going over or under that? Oh, well, I, I well, I think he said ten bitcoins. So that that makes it about <laughs> uh, three hundred three hundred thousand pounds. Oh, you're but, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, being, being from Boston, where I I track you know Tom Brady's progression, <laughs> even though he's moved on to a different city now. I know his uh, his rookie. His rookie uh, card uh, fetched something like one point three million uh, wow. last time it got auctioned, uh, and, and it's it's not the only car left in the world. Mm. Unlike this this piece of wedding cake, right? So I got I gotta say the wedding cake's gotta fetch something like let's say one point five million pounds. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and when it's that expensive, I'm not gonna take a bite. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it's uh, Dominic Winter Auctioneers. 
I imagine they would like both of you two to be bidding in this auction because the reason I brought this up is the surprising low value they think. Oh, they're, no. they're thinking only 500 pounds. I think it's going to go. I, we're going to we're gonna have to check back on this in August when it actually goes up right. because I think it's going to go for a lot more than five, 500 pounds. I might buy the thing myself. Uh, I, I think they're way off in their expected bid on that. Maybe that's a way to drum up interest and get, get people right. uh, bidding on it. But uh, a, a similar yeah. piece of cake sold in. 19, uh, it was like 1998, I think, um, right after Princess Diana died for like 150,000 pounds. Wow. Mm. So a depreciating asset. Wedding, wedding cakes are a depreciating <laughs> asset. The only question I have is how do they um, authentic the cake? How do you verify oh, the yeah. cake from it, the wedding? Yep, <laughs> they, um, well, they have, it comes with some kind of documentation. I'd have to look up the story, but there is... Um, the the servant who collected it, it was given to her, I think, as just leftovers, like, here, you want some cake? And she knew that this might be worth a few bucks. So she <laughs> tucked it away Very and she smart. wrote on top of it, wedding cake from Princess Diana. So there's some kind of these auction right. houses are good at authenticating this stuff. I'm not I'm not sure how, but I <laughs> it'd be a pretty good scam to have a 40 year old piece of wedding cake. That was not uh, <laughs> not actually not the real really, deal. No, <laughs> if they somehow turn this into an NFT, it might be worth even more. That's right. 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 An NFT is someone actually eating the thing and then you know, sell that for uh, that. Might, you might get your million and a half for that. But we'll see. I'm going to check back because I, I think you guys were in the right direction. I think it's going to go a lot more than what they expected for it. <laughs> Right. Because people pay crazy money for crazy things is, is that's, yeah. that's the lesson of this segment, I, I think. So, <laughs> but guys, I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Jason, Sue and Yishi, thank you both for your time. Jason, I know it's early where you are. So thank you for getting up early for us. And uh, absolutely. And get back to the flight deck there of the USS Enterprise. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Ring Anonymous. Yi Shi is at Shi Yi Bloomberg. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pelt of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.